This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. To anyone who is ever worried about who will grab the check on a first date, remember, no matter what happens, things could be worse. For example, you could go home after your date treats you to a meal, only to receive a Venmo request the next morning. Your seemingly gracious date from the previous evening would like payment for your half. Or you could have arrived to meet your date to find yourself face-to-face with someone who looked nothing like their profile. You could have been catfished, lured into dating a completely different person with fake photos and information. Of course, such horror stories of cheap dates and -and bait-and-switch incidents are nothing new. But the rate at which singles are experiencing them now proves technology has indeed changed the times. Transparency is lacking, and dating in the 21st century has laid out a road fraught with potholes that didn't exist even five years ago. Over the past 10 years, social media and internet matchmaking have raced each other into the unknown. And they've collided to form a terrifying yet irresistible Frankenstein. The Dating App. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our second episode on The Dark Side of Dating. The quest for love may seem like a celebratory, beautiful thing, but its romanticized image conceals all kinds of unpleasant truths. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're diving into the complicated history of internet dating, from the early chat rooms of America Online to the current minefield of app culture. Taking matchmaking to the World Wide Web has had the curious effect of both opening up the experience and plaguing it with new pitfalls. With all that could go wrong, singles are often left wondering if the chance of love is worth braving the risks. Last week, we talked about finding the one and the hazards that have beset the search since the first days of dating back in the early 20th century. Naturally, internet dating has offered new avenues for that search and new dangers. But internet dating isn't an entirely new phenomenon. The process of crowdsourcing for a mate has been around for centuries. Before there was the profile, there was the personal. Ad, that is. As far back as the late 1600s, newspapers had special sections where someone looking for a partner could poll society for a little help. British bachelors were among the first to place ads in search of wives. They didn't mince words in their specifications. One posting in A Collection for Improvement to Husbandry and Trade chronicled a man's quest for some good young gentlewoman that has a fortune of £3,000 or thereabouts. This was no small sum. Today, £3,000 shakes out to more than $800,000 U.S. dollars. Dating ads were intrinsically focused on practical financial matters, in keeping with dominant ideas about marriage at the time. But heterosexual couples aren't the only ones who have taken to the press in the search for love. Personals were long a place for the LGBTQ community to seek out partners, too although usually with more covert language. A code word or two woven into the text of the ad indicated to those in the know what type of companion was desired. But regardless of who was seeking whom, the public nature of personals placed them under the microscope. Just like the first daters in the 1910s, these so-called Lonely Hearts ads were often deemed suspicious. Many newspaper readers speculated that something must be wrong with the person behind the ad. They had failed at finding love through more traditional channels. This stigma traveled decades into the future, all the way through the inception of online dating in the late 1990s. Some of those who got online, or resisted doing so, believed the internet was a last resort. They felt that looking on the web meant they had already failed to find love the normal way. But internet dating has grown into a booming market. Dating apps will become an estimated $3.2 billion operation in 2020. The founders knew if they could get enough people on board with finding someone online, the possibilities were endless. And one Hollywood film certainly got the ball rolling. 
1998's rom-com classic, You've Got Mail, was a love story for modern singles. Viewers were captivated by Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks' sugary sweet romance, born in an AOL chat room. The film's light humor did wonders for peeling away the grim failure people associated with online dating. More importantly, it gave audiences hope that the internet could be just the place to meet your other half. Unfortunately, real-life online dating wasn't quite as adorable as You've Got Mail made it out to be. In fact, from the beginning, it was much more similar to those early financially-focused personal ads looking for a partner of good fortune. It's just that this time, the money wasn't passing between the potential matches themselves. It was going straight to the online dating companies, who were determined to take the modern love-based model for dating and use it to build a money-making enterprise. Match.com was perhaps the most prominent of those early sites. Launched in 1993, the website aimed to pair singles based on their similarities and desires. A laudable aim, combined, of course, with the intention of making the search for love profitable. By 2001, Match had teamed up with instant message tycoons like AOL and MSN, posting bright pink digital banners all across the internet. More and more startups jumped into the ring, convinced that the future of dating was online. eHarmony was founded in 2000, followed by Christian Mingle in 2001, Canadian site Plenty of Fish in 2003, and OkCupid in 2004. They were right. People were signing up. They wanted love, or at least the opportunity to try and find it. After all, as we discussed last week, they were bombarded with media insisting they needed a partner. Dating sites seemed like a reasonable place to find one. But the dating sites were getting greedy. In 2010, subscription fees could range from $16 a month, if bundled in a six-month package, to $35 a month for an a la carte trial. By mid-2015, Match.com membership had climbed to $42 per month. eHarmony was charging nearly $60. Love wasn't happening through the idealized meet-cutes of romantic Hollywood films like You've Got Mail. Instead, it was characterized by a high price tag. For many young people at the start of their careers, that tag was unappealing or out of reach. Plus, money can't buy you love, right? But even for young people reluctant to buy into the system, the appeal of dating online was obvious. You could meet far more people than you'd otherwise come into contact with. Plus, the more people who signed up for online dating, the harder it seemed to meet people in person. Fewer singles were going to bars or parties planning to approach anyone. A stranger at a party might be in a relationship after all, or just uninterested. Online though, you could be sure the person you were chatting with thought you were a decent prospect. Some websites saw opportunity in the problem of young people who wanted to try online dating but didn't want to pay, namely Canadian website Plenty of Fish. It decided to fund itself through ad sales instead of membership fees. And the gamble worked. A New York Times article from 2008 reported that in November 2007, Plenty of Fish had 1.4 million unique visitors in the United States. 
As online dating started to move away from the pricey model, the off-putting mix of money and romance was a bit farther removed. But the shift led to new problems. No membership fees meant plenty of fish cut corners. The site's slogan, 100% free, put away your credit card, actually meant 100% free, use at your own personal risk. Don't expect customer service or support. In 2008, the consequences of the loosely regulated website would prove deadly for one of its users. On October 10th, 38-year-old Johnny Altinger went to a quiet neighborhood in Edmonton, Canada. It was friendly and safe, or so he thought. He was meeting up with a woman he'd been chatting with online. The two had connected through plenty of fish. He'd met women from the site before, though most dates ended up being better friends than partners. Still, he was open to keep trying. But this meetup from the start did not seem like a recipe for true love. When he arrived at the location, it was a suburban garage, and Jen wasn't there. Instead, a man claiming to be a filmmaker was hanging out in the garage. His name was Mark Twitchell. He offered to show Altinger around. Unsettled, Altinger left and called his friend Dale Smith to tell him about the bizarre experience. Altinger was going back to the garage. Strange, but Smith knew his friend had a level head. He could take care of himself. When he didn't hear back from Altinger the next day, however, he was concerned. The odd messages that came next indicated that something had gone terribly wrong. On October 13th, three days after the date, an email blast was sent from Altinger's account. He claimed that he and Jen, the woman he'd been talking to on Plenty of Fish, were off for a spontaneous vacation to Costa Rica. The email sign-off, which lacked Altinger's usual humor, piqued the concern of its recipients. Friends went to Altinger's apartment. He wasn't home, but it didn't appear he had packed for a trip either. His bags and clothes were all present, and likewise, his passport. The worst detail, though, was a small one. Smith found Altinger's beloved motorcycle sitting uncovered in the building's parking structure. Altinger was meticulous about taking care of his bike. He'd never leave it like that if he was going on a trip. Smith decided it was time to tell the police. He directed authorities to the address Altinger had sent him and unleashed a devastating chain reaction. Local police found evidence that the garage was being rented by 29-year-old Mark Twitchell, the amateur filmmaker. Evidence indicated that Mark was Jen, the woman Altinger had met online and arranged to see the evening of October 10, 2008. And by the looks of the garage, a struggle had ensued there. Coming up, We'll hear what happened to Johnny Altinger and then delve into perhaps the most terrifying development yet, the dating app. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On October 10th, 2008, 38-year-old Johnny Altinger went to a quiet neighborhood in Edmonton, Canada for what he thought was a date. He'd planned to meet the girl he'd been chatting with online through the website Plenty of Fish. But he never came home from the date, spurring Canadian police to investigate. What they found was gruesome. Johnny Altinger had been stabbed to death and his body dismembered. Altinger's friends were shocked and heartbroken, but authorities quickly found a lead, Mark Twitchell, who was renting the garage. Twitchell's eccentric interests were far from innocent. He kept a diary, and in it, he wrote about his love for the Showtime murder drama, Dexter. But he wasn't just a casual fan. He expressed admiration for serial killers, real as well as fictional. Then, the police uncovered his activity on Facebook, and his posts seemed to indicate that he wanted to try out his twisted fantasies. Plenty of fish must have seemed like the perfect platform to cast a few lines and see who would bite. After all, what's online dating but a chance to meet a perfect stranger, no strings attached? Twitchell eventually confessed that he had killed Altinger and disposed of the remains in a storm drain. This confirmed his malicious intentions, but his trial was more than a condemnation of a single twisted individual. It also offered an up-close look at the unregulated abyss of dating websites. Before this, most people didn't think twice about the dangers of meeting someone online. After all, they were supposedly all in the game of love together. The sweetest, purest game of all. Sure, users worried about bad dates, and some of them, still sensitive about the stigma of online dating, worried about being treated as social pariahs. But that was it. Homicide was a completely unthinkable escalation. But apparently a real one. In fact, not only had Twitchell used the website to lure in Johnny Altinger, he'd done the exact same thing to another man days earlier. Gilles Tetreau had gone to the garage just a week before Altinger on October 3rd. He'd arrived at the same location in suburban Edmonton, believing he was about to meet a woman named Sheena. Like Altinger, he'd met this woman on Plenty of Fish. But instead of finding a bubbly blonde, Tetro was shocked with a stun gun by a masked attacker. When he was able to stand, he lurched back at Twitchell and landed a punch that temporarily grounded him. Tetro ran out of the garage and flagged down a couple walking their dog. This was enough to scare Twitchell off. He let Tetro escape. Twitchell's first victim was so disturbed, however, that he didn't report the attack to police. He admitted in a later interview with British publication The Sun that, I knew I needed to go to the police, but I was ashamed about what had happened to me, that I got duped by this man pretending to be a female. 
It was only on November 2nd, 2008, when newspapers reported that Twitchell had been arrested for manslaughter, that Tetro came forward. Twitchell's trial opened up a trove of concerns from both local and international press. Why hadn't Twitchell been vetted before joining Plenty of Fish? Were there any precautions in place to protect users from psychopaths? The answers were grim. There were few barriers aside from user questionnaires and terms of use policies, both of which new users could lie about. There was little to stop anyone from simply logging onto the website, making a profile, and matching with dozens of people. After the trial, users on the website were left with little, if any, closure. The platform kept operating, and users could continue logging on at their own risk. Online dating had moved away from an unappealing, unromantic paywall and straight into a literal danger zone. This lack of verification and accountability on Plenty of Fish set a precedent as the mid-aughts closed out. Dating online came with very real dangers, but it was only compounded by new problems as a fresher, younger, sleeker generation of digital dating came on the scene. Apps. Dating apps were a makeover to the hackneyed websites of years past. First appearing in 2009, these simplified interfaces meant daters no longer had to log on via desktop computers to chat with matches. Thanks to smartphones like the recently released iPhone, conversations now fit into anyone's pocket. New connections could be made at the drop of a hat. The SMS-like builds of Grindr, Tinder, and Bumble were far less stuffy than their predecessors. They crafted the online dating landscape we find ourselves in today, one that prizes simplicity and brevity of text and an abundance of appealing visuals. While traditional online dating sites often presented users with almost unlimited space to describe and define themselves, on apps, succinct descriptions are encouraged through character limits. Snappy media applets like GIFs and emojis are more supported than long paragraphs of text. Most information comes from linked social media accounts. Bumble and Hinge pull from Facebook and Instagram to create photo galleries for users' profiles. To look through a potential match's curated photos is a voyeuristic experience, a brief, mostly visual glimpse into a stranger's life. Then you make a choice, interested or not. The streamlined designs of these apps look nice. The visuals they're centered on are more sensually appealing than text. Plus, these apps are convenient and largely free. But they have introduced a slew of new problems to online dating. First off, choosing matches based on visuals, or in other words, appearance, prompts users to judge each and every book by its cover and cover alone. And when someone is deemed interesting or worthy based on just a few photos, the opportunity for bias grows exponentially. Racism and discrimination have made inroads on the apps, and without clearly outlined protocols to quash them, they've spread like malignant growths. A 2018 Huffington Post article explained that some online daters are emboldened to specify 
that they're only interested in one ethnicity. They use both veiled and explicit language to say so. One dating app user encountered, sorry, no Asians, repeatedly while swiping. Salini Godgill, an Indian Portuguese woman, shared her similar experience in a 2019 piece for Elle magazine. She often faced immediate objectification from matches, placed on a pedestal as exotic or receiving unsolicited lewd messages. If she spoke plainly about her ethnicity, some conversations simply stopped. As she put it, you have to lose some and be abused some to win some. In particular, black women, Asian men, and the LGBTQ community often face microaggressions, fetishization, and blatant racism on a routine basis while using dating apps. Some, like Grindr and LGBTQ app, have recently attempted to reel in such behavior by restricting the ability to filter matches by ethnicity. But the damage has already been done. The culture of the app is, according to NBC News, one of rampant racism, femme-shaming, and transphobia. Many apps have claimed that rewriting their terms of use policies, guidelines for what is expected of users, should be sufficient to patrol inappropriate behavior. But this claim is at best naive and at worst disingenuous. Most users blow past the policies without even reading them. Plus, once users join, many apps actually provide tools that reinforce discrimination. Namely, different metrics by which you can sort through app users. A Cornell study found that letting users search, sort, and filter potential partners by race not only allows people to easily act on discriminatory preferences, it stops them from connecting with partners they may not have realized they'd like. But whether or not a user sets narrow or biased filters, there is still one more feature encouraging bias the app's own algorithms. That same Cornell study cited a 2016 BuzzFeed report that revealed the dating app Coffee Meets Bagel showed users only potential partners of their same race, even when the users said they had no preference. Clearly, catchy slogans like, single is a terrible thing to waste, don't address the fact that discrimination is also a terrible thing to gain. Some apps have made an effort to avoid this kind of superficial matching, namely Hinge. Instead of swipe left and right photo galleries, Hinge users are required to fill in answers to icebreaker questions, a backpedal towards earlier versions of internet dating. In turn, anyone interested comments directly on the answers. The exchange is meant to create more thoughtful engagement than swipes. Sometimes this works. But again, this innovation, like all the others, is plagued with its own dangers. By encouraging users to get to know a stranger's subtle quirks, likes, and interests immediately, apps can sometimes create a slippery slope to premature intimacy. Conversations based on profile information often leap far ahead would-be couples talk with a candidness that usually only comes after a few dates. 
A 2016 report from UK's National Crime Agency linked the increase in sexual assault cases from online dating to this candor. Quote, Time spent communicating online or money spent on traveling to meet the other person may foster expectations that the relationship will progress even more rapidly upon meeting, or may even create the attitude that an individual has a right to get what they want from that meeting. The problems with the experience of online dating don't end there, unfortunately. A 2016 Hinge survey, while far from comprehensive, suggests even more disappointing aspects to this now ubiquitous love-finding tool. According to Hinge's data, 22% of men on Hinge have used a swiping app while on a date. 81% of Hinge users have never found a long-term relationship on any swiping app, and 7 in 10 surveyed women on the leading swiping app have received sexually explicit messages or images. It's clear that for all their variety, the apps aren't necessarily effective at helping users find love, or at keeping safe for that matter. The statistic that addressed harassment is particularly alarming. Multiple studies on dating apps have utilized Instagram accounts dedicated to the vulgar and sexually explicit messages women receive from dating matches. Taking to social media publicizes the unwanted nature of such interactions. Without any clear legal standard for reporting online harassment, making jokes on Instagram or Twitter is one of the few ways women feel they can indicate this behavior isn't welcome or appropriate. But as is often true with humor, this approach can also risk belittling the experience. In December 2019, a BuzzFeed piece profiled numerous women across the U.S. who were raped or sexually assaulted by men they'd met on dating apps. Match Group, in particular, fell under fire. The conglomerate purchased a slew of dating apps in February of 2018 to add to its hallmark site, Match.com. And the BuzzFeed article explained an alarming discrepancy in the organization's safety tools across these platforms. Match Group checks its paid subscribers against each state's registered sex offender list. But according to BuzzFeed, it doesn't take that step on Tinder, OkCupid, or Plenty of Fish, or any of its free platforms. When the allegations were investigated by police, they found that many of the aggressors in question were convicted sex offenders with at least one prior assault charge. And the danger doesn't stop there. These platforms have no protocols in place to stop offenders from just rejoining under another name. 31-year-old Kerry God reported she had been raped in 2014 by a man named Michael Miller, whom she'd met on OkCupid. God brought the case to the police, and Miller was convicted of sexual exploitation and assault. He was listed as a sex offender in Colorado as of May 2015. But God soon saw Miller's pictures back on OkCupid. According to BuzzFeed, Within three months, in fact, he was charged with probation violations after admitting to using an unapproved cell phone to access the app. Reports of assault from app users certainly raised a new level of awareness. 
According to Cosmopolitan UK, today many women take precautions when meeting online dates for the first time. Some screenshot their date's photo and name. Others text the meetup location to a trusted friend. Even reverse Google image searching photos from a date's profile is reasonable. After everything we've learned, it's clear that safety remains in the hands of the user. Coming up, we'll explain some of the behaviors that have led even seasoned dating app users to experience buyer's remorse. Now, back to the story. Dating apps like Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, and Coffee Meets Bagel took over the online dating market beginning around 2009. They promise a sleek, stylish, and convenient way to meet the love of your life, or at least a fun temporary partner. But it's clear the experience they provide is a very mixed bag. Even without the worst of the behavior that festers in dating apps, navigating them is a minefield. Users keep signing up and swiping right. Tinder had an estimated 50 million users per month in 2014, and that number has only gone up. But the access to hundreds of new people also means unlimited opportunities for lackluster and disappointing connections. And a slew of new terms have appeared to make sense of the chaos. Ghosting came into vogue in 2014. To ghost, according to Mike.com, describes someone's desire to recklessly abandon all responsibility from a person, project, or simply in general. In the specific context of dating apps, Huffington Post defined it as the anecdotally pervasive act where one dater ends a relationship by simply disappearing. Whoever is on the receiving side of the ghost is often baffled and left without any clarity on the reason for severed ties. Ghosting can also unroll slowly, hence the term the slow fade. Conversation slows, with responses from one party growing lethargic. Banter dries up to a trickle, then a drip, then nothing. Though the slow fade has been around for centuries, and nearly anyone can relate to dodging unwanted affection, the nature of dating apps and digital communication has compounded the phenomenon. Apps have a uniquely clinical touch. When other potential matches are a swipe or two or three away, users are far less inclined to put in continued effort with someone they are smitten with off the bat. And many who have ghosted matches admit their empathy is far lower than it might be with someone they met in real life. It's easier to completely forget about someone who only exists on the other side of a screen and to treat them less than kindly. But the pain of ghosting often goes both ways. Ghosts are equally prone to be ghosted. In a 2014 Huffington Post piece, a young woman in New York laughed darkly at the irony, saying, I'm a total hypocrite in that respect. I'll ghost someone without a second thought. But when it happens to me, I'm the first to run to my girlfriends in disbelief, saying, the least he could do is let me down easy. But ghosting is far from the only term that has emerged out of the online dating minefield. To breadcrumb someone, either before or after meeting in person, means to communicate just enough to keep a potential mate interested with no intention to further the relationship. 
Submarining is to disappear without a trace, only to re-emerge and engage in conversation as if no time has passed. The inexplicable fluctuations between interest and apathy have led thousands of daters down a path they don't quite understand. What started as a fun way to meet people turns into psychological mind games. App users who have been ghosted, breadcrumbed, or submarined often backtrack, sifting through the earlier chats to see if there's an identifiable turning point that soured the conversation. And usually, there isn't. The unexpected hurt from these would-be relationships is unsettling and leads many users to view the icons on their phone screens with more cynical eyes. All the swiping and chatting becomes work, and they're tired. Dating app fatigue came about as a way to explain some of the confusing, hot and cold behavior that started around 2012. It still pervades app culture today. This fatigue comes from the ennui of lingering on the apps without much dedicated interest. Such apathy or lack of conviction is tied to the overwhelming amount of prospects, none of which have as yet turned into the one. It often sets in after users have been on the interfaces for some time, and the shiny fun of talking to new matches has worn off. Dating becomes an endless cycle of filtering and sifting. The clinical nature of searching by characteristics, locations, and hobbies is more akin to looking for a new apartment or car rather than a partner. It has none of the glamour of a Hollywood film or the charm of grandma's story about meeting grandpa on the high school bleachers. In one Atlantic article, a tech developer tried to explain his lack of excitement, saying, I kind of use apps now just for entertainment when I'm bored or standing in lines. I go in with zero expectations. I noticed a huge shift in my intentions. This too ties back to the emotional risk of online dating. Unless both parties are crystal clear about what they're looking for when they start to chat, the result is often disparate emotional investment. Some partners are more willing to begin emotional legwork with conversation and have expectations for that to be reciprocated. If a match doesn't and instead ghosts, it can be especially discouraging. And repeated instances of being ghosted can take their toll. In recent years, the psychological effects of online dating have come under scrutiny. These disappointing interactions often correlate with decreased self-esteem and depression. Diminishing self-confidence finds inroads through the visual aspect of dating apps. Women especially feel pressure to change their looks to make potential partners swipe right. If they get more matches using a photo that's edited or that makes their body look a certain way, they're more inclined to alter their lifestyle to help them look more like the photo. A 2016 study by the American Psychological Association found that 
Being actively involved with Tinder, regardless of the user's gender, was associated with body dissatisfaction, body shame, body monitoring, internalization of societal expectations of beauty, comparing oneself physically to others, and reliance on media for information on appearance and attractiveness. Some women have gone so far as to create fake profiles on apps like Bumble or Tinder as men in order to see who their competition is, meaning they can see how other women are crafting their profiles to make their own either better or similar. Whether it's being thinner, having more curves, or flaunting flawless skin, there's always something that feels like it could be changed to help entice a match. But even if a user does match with enough partners, the road to a date is still rife with self-esteem problems. Those who repeatedly encounter waning interest or ghosting can feel ostracized, sad, or angry. Dating apps are said to stimulate the parts of the brain that gauge satisfaction levels. Matching with someone creates a sense of contentment and pride. Conversely, if a person isn't getting the responses they want, or any replies whatsoever, they're disappointed. And it can seriously affect their mental health. An NBC News article tied users' consistent use of apps to the psychological concept of variable ratio reinforcement. What that means is the feeling of urgency to check a dating app, quote, creates a positive or negative reinforcement that arrives unpredictably, like winning a jackpot. In the hopes of getting the positive reinforcement, people keep checking back on conversations or matches, even though more often than not, they end up getting something negative. The itch of the phone in your pocket makes it hard not to obsess over whether or not the dating apps are working. But singles do sometimes grow tired of the slog and less excited to pay the emotional poll taxes, so to speak, of the journey to love. Especially after a more literal tax was introduced. Around 2018, after popular apps like Bumble, Tinder, and Hinge had gained loyal users, the freemium pricing model was rolled out. Even though most of the basic features of the app were still available for free, the best options were placed behind a paywall. Ads started to pepper the free interface, enticing a user to upgrade to a monthly payment. The ads, playing into frustration about lackluster dates, suggest that getting more matches is just on the other side of the paywall. Some users appreciate the upgrades and see them as a positive development. According to Vox, Hannah, a 31-year-old teacher, opted for a paid service to see if it would adjust how she considered potential matches. And it helped, she said. I definitely decided to match or message with some men I would have left swiped on if I hadn't known they were interested in me. But others lamented that the upgrades were just more of the same. Another woman admitted that Tinder Gold was basically just a vanity purchase to reassure myself that people would be interested in me if I started using it more seriously. Vox was firm in noting that the actual quality of interactions one would get from paying for a dating app were likely the same as the free version. 
Quote, that virtual $10 doesn't unlock the gateway to the magical closet where your perfect match has been hiding all along. Paying for tools that expanded match radius or connection times simply offered more control. And maybe that's what internet dating and the apps that eclipsed it boil down to. Control. After decades of being conditioned to believe that love and partnership is the key to happiness, ordinary people just want a chance to find someone. Swiping can feel like taking the reins of destiny, or at least telling the driver where you might want to go. The reality, though, is that the ability to create change doesn't mean you'll get the desired end result. Only after hours of sifting does this bleak fact dawn on the daters that have flocked to the apps in search of change. So now, singles have a choice. They can either hold down the shaking app icons on their phones, or they can keep swiping. Either is a gamble. Play wisely. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be back to discuss the dark side of criminal couples. You can find all other ParCast originals on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>